And welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, Pep Guardiola's Man City give Jose Mourinho's United a chasing in their 3-1 victory on Sunday and it's not just the fans that are unhappy. The Glazers feel that it was a watershed moment. Is the Josie Mourinho era now drawing to a close? We take a deep dive into the Man City and FFP situation as the scandal from Der Spiegel and football leaks deepens. As the Premier League, UEFA and even FIFA get set to investigate, we look at the potential ramifications for the Premier League leaders. And we look at the young, talented kids who can set the Premier League alight and ask if they're the real deal in our legendary quickfire round. Okay, well, we're going to start with you, Ian, because uh, you have some news for us about Jose Mourinho and his future at Manchester United after a defeat in the derby against City at the weekend. 12 points behind now. Is there any future for Jose Mourinho at Manchester United as things stand? Well, Johnny, we're no stranger to speculation about Mourinho's um, position at United. Um, I think recent results, obviously, and the way the team have played have um, shored up his position uh, to a certain degree um, with, obviously, um, late wins. Um, but what I'm hearing uh, today and what I've heard over the last seven days, so this is before the the defeat at the Etihad to Manchester City, is that um, the Glazers, as owners, um, see their investment as being never stronger. Um, their share price has, has peaked and that they uh, feel very, very confident in the Manchester United brand. Now, the only thing that's missing from that is obviously trophies and success on the pitch and a positive image, a positive, um, if you like, vibe about Manchester United, which doesn't currently exist. And they have been increasingly worried by um, the controversy and provocation which surrounds Jose Mourinho's leadership at the club. Um, obviously, the FA charge was unproven, and, but, but then again, you know, the cupping of his um, ear in Juventus and these may seem like small things, but they're, they're big things in terms of the image of the club. Um, and what I've heard is that the Glazers themselves are now at last willing to accept that the club needs a, a root and branches um, restructure in terms of the playing squad. They have a minimum 10 players out of contract this summer. Um, what usually happens at clubs like Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea, Tottenham, whoever, is if you've got players who aren't good enough to play for the club and they're on big or long contracts, then you have to pay them to leave. And Manchester United are in what can only be described as either a lucky or a watershed moment in terms of the um, 
situation they find themselves in. Because players like Phil Jones, Chris Smalling, Ashley Young, um, David De Gea, uh, I'd say De Gea is, is the exception to the rule, obviously, because they want to keep him. But they've got players who can, can effectively be um, allowed to leave the club without any payoff and therefore no financial indemnity to the club. Um, and I'm not saying that allowing 10 squad players from the first team is a great idea, but the bottom line is that you could allow at least maybe half of that to happen and bring in at the kind of cost effectiveness that you would like to uh, dream of in terms of a Premier League club, um, bring in other players to do that. But also if you've got in the realms of 200 to 300 million pounds to spend, you can bring in one or two marquee players as well. And that will, all of that will be really um, pertinent and also very uh, important to the club going forward. So um, the question, of course, that then raises is, is Jose Mourinho the right person to recruit those players? Is it the person to rebuild the squad, rebuild the team? I think we've obviously had um, lots of... Um, you know, debate about that in the last few weeks as to whether that's the case. Uh, and I, I think now there is a, a general feeling um, amongst the Glazer family and the ones that actually run Manchester United um, about whether or not he is that person. And therefore, I think... I'm not saying his position is um, on the line right now. I think he will be allowed to see the season out. But I think that there is definitely a an ongoing discussion at the boardroom level with regards to who will come in to replace him. Duncan, you're the man that many people turn to when they want the latest Jose Mourinho information. What do you make of all this from Ian? What's your sense of how this is going to pan out? Well, look, I think we've talked um, on the podcast for weeks now that about how Jose Mourinho's position is fragile um, at Manchester United. We highlighted that they were entering a sequence of extremely difficult matches um, after a very poor start to the season. And we said that results would be critical um, in terms of determining the, his future at Manchester United, determining whether he'd be allowed um, uh, backing in the transfer market in January um, and whether the, the, the Glazers would go with him um, into the next season. Um, I think we've said several times that fundamental to the Glazers is qualification for the Champions League. Um, and I think if you look at Jose Mourinho's recent um, post-match, um, pre-match comments, you will see he has frequently mentioned uh, the importance of getting into the top four um, and doesn't want to talk about the title um, for obvious reasons. I think his argument that you don't you shouldn't be talking about the title when you're outside of the top four is a fair one. But he makes it clear that the target is to get into the top four, and, and that is no coincidence. That is, he knows that the last two managers of Manchester United were dismissed after they failed um, um, in their seasons to secure uh, Champions League football for Manchester United the next season. We know that financially that's hugely important to the Glazers. I think um, down the line that will be the, 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 the base point if Mourinho can't qualify this Manchester United squad, which, although clearly dysfunctional, is still 
uh, has had a huge amount of investment in it um, and should be enough uh, to reach the top four, then the Glazers will make a change. I think you also see here the Glazers being strategic, um, and which they have to be, because uh, the assumption that Mourinho will carry on at Manchester United regardless is one that would have to be questioned. Um, when Mourinho was asked about this in press conferences, when he was asked about the Real Madrid, Madrid job recently, he did the political thing and said, I, you know, I see my future at Manchester United, I don't want to go anywhere else. But it's a reality that um, Real Madrid, when they were replacing Julian Lopetegui, wanted to hire Mourinho and um, were told that he would not come at this stage. It's a reality that, that Real Madrid are waiting to see if Mourinho becomes available. So if Manchester United are in any way um, strategic about this, they have to realise that um, it's not just their call here. There's the possibility that Mourinho can um, see he has an out at, uh, at least uh, the same uh, dimension of club and, and certainly a club with a better squad. And that out might continue to exist until the summer. So if they, um, if they, if there is the possibility that Mourinho can say, "I've had enough of this project. I've had enough of dealing with Ed Woodward. I've had enough of the, the structures and the inefficiency with which Manchester United work, and I'm prepared to go back to Real Madrid," then the, the analysis for for the Glazers is: we need a new manager, so we should be, regardless of whether we decide to push the button ourselves, we might have to prepare for the fact that our manager resigns and goes elsewhere. Um, I think it's more driven by the Glazers thinking they might need a replacement themselves and that they want to replace at present, but have to cover both bases. Um, and then um, who for? Well. I, I, mean, I, I wrote a column for um, the record a couple of weeks ago about the situation with Mauricio Pochettino. We know Madrid tried to hire Pochettino in the summer. We know Pochettino agreed to go and that Levy wouldn't let him go. We know Madrid were interested in taking Pochettino again um, at the same time as they were looking at Mourinho to replace Lopetegui and couldn't get him out. And we know that Mauricio Pochettino's situation at Tottenham is not um, great, um, that they have big financial uh, problems. Um, the stadium costs have massively overrun. He hasn't been getting the players in the market that he wanted to get. And I think there's a real sense that Pochettino um, is thinking about this as being his last season at Tottenham, if he can get out. And, and then you would ask the question, um, if, if Pochettino is coming on the market in the summer um, and Real Madrid are definitely interested in him, and Manchester United were definitely interested in him last time, then Manchester United need to be preparing for that scenario um, to try and convince Pochettino that they are the better club to come to. So I think there's there's a, a lot of, of different strands to this. Um, but ultimately, key is going to be, as it was, as it has been for the last few weeks, results. Um, I think Manchester United are, are definitely improving on the field. I mean, we were talking just a few days after they went to... Um, one of the strongest teams in Europe. I went a goal down and, and won there, uh, one of the, the, the clear favourites for the Champions League. So it's not as though um, it's not as though every game is a, a disastrous result. And I don't think they were um, they were miles out of it against Manchester City um, at the weekend, even though 
they conceded stupid goals again. Um, you know, they again got back in that game, and there was a period in which I think Mourinho's analysis that that um, City knew they were in a game and were and were worried about an equaliser is, is right. So there's lots still to play for. It's fair. We've only had 12 games in the season. United are what seven points off the Champions League pay, play, pace in a season in which the top three are uh, unbeaten, which is unprecedented. Um, and Tottenham and Arsenal started pretty well too. So it, it won't actually take that much um, in terms of, of a sequence of good results to get Manchester United into um, proper Champions League um, qualification. And they should now make it to the knockout stages of um, of the Champions League after that win in Juventus, which you know, I, I listened to Paul Scholes um, after Sunday's game complaining that Mourinho should have prioritised the Manchester City match over um, over the Juventus game because the Juventus game wasn't very important. I think that's just ridiculous because if, if, if United had lost at Juventus, their last two matches, which include um, Valencia away, would have, would have been fundamental to their, their chances of getting through and they would have been you know they would be fighting from a, uh, the third place position the expectation that Valencia were favorites to get it so you, you know from a management perspective he had to take the game at, at UV seriously and then just see if he could get through the, the the city match too I don't disagree with what Duncan said Johnny in terms of um, the reality or the um, what we should look upon as um, you know, in the light of day, losing to Manchester City 3-1. I think what potentially is a fatal wound in Mourinho and his overseeing of Manchester United is that moment where Manchester City produced 44 passes over 121 seconds where United do not touch the ball and they produce a goal of superlative creation for Ilka Gundahan to put them 3-1 up and therefore the game out of sight. And what what I what I wonder is that how long or indeed um what Manchester United fans stroke the board stroke ex players as Duncan's referred to see as the gulf between the two teams. Um it was raised on social media that very question um, in the aftermath of the game yesterday, uh, on Sunday, I should say. And um, when was the last time the golf was so big? And of course, those who have any football knowledge know that United won the treble uh, of Champions League, FA Cup and Premier League in 1999 and Manchester City were in the division below. Now, I'm not saying that the golf is that big now, but it's big enough for people to ask the question, um, is it the right person in charge? Is it the right person who's picking the team? And um, the person who's deploying the tactics, etc., etc. And that's my um, interpretation of why Manchester United will now look, I think, um, beyond January transfer window and indeed beyond the end of the season, and think to themselves, um, we need to take a different step in terms of who the manager is going to be. Uh, and, and specifically, if they're going to invest 
sort of two hundred million pounds, which I'm I'm told they're willing to do, and get marquee players in and uh, rearrange and reignite the squad and everything else, then Mourinho's got a lot of work to do between now and May to convince the Glazer family that he's the person to um, invest in and invest that money in. Ian, do you think that that was a good representation of the gap between the two squads in that game? Or do you feel that um, Jose himself isn't utilising the players he has at his disposal? I think that's a a moot question, to be fair. But um, what you can only do is, I mean, despite Jose's disputation with the, uh, the facts or the stats that he called them on the game... Um, I think anyone watching that game over 90 minutes would say that City were absolutely in control for possibly 70% of the match, which is unusual in a game amongst Derby rivals and against Manchester United, Manchester City as well. Regard, I mean, think about last season where um, Jose turned th- th- that same fixture around to win 3-2 and deny City winning the title um, at home in front of their own fans. It just doesn't seem to have the same feel about this particular set of players, even though it's largely the same and everything else. I, it, it just doesn't feel to me to be one who can challenge and to be 12 points behind this early in the season. Um, I don't think even Jose would say the stats you know, lie in terms of that. The, the reason I ask is because if that game is representative of the gap, then 200 million is potentially not going to be enough. I would disagree with that, Johnny. I think I think two hundred million pounds in terms of investment would could possibly be enough because if you look at what Liverpool invested in Keita, Fabinho, um, in last summer's transfer window, and those two players haven't even featured very much, but the, what they have done is, is, is put the squad in a much more um, better shape in terms of depth of quality. And they are up there challenging, and those players I think will become very influential as 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 the season goes on. Um, I think, as I said before, Manchester United are at a watershed moment that they've had chaos and um, a, a lot of spending and a lot of kind of let's just say uh, a lack of uh, planning with regards to the recruitment in the last four years since Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, retired, and they need a clear pathway, a clear plan with which they have to move forward into. And unfortunately, and I'm not saying it's the right thing or the wrong thing, they don't believe Jose Mourinho is the person to do that, is to, is to plan for the future and plan that investment. Now, I don't think that between 200 and 300 million pounds of investment um, can effectively turn around the club around in one season but what it can do is 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 i believe anyway is take a new um leaf if you like um and and show that they can invest and progress in the way that they haven't done in the last four years um and it's unfortunate Mourinho is not the person that they believe in to do that but that's that's football. That's the way things happen. And an example of this, even just going into the January window, is that um, the um, Ajax centre-back, John Delight, 
who has been very much touted around European clubs and as someone who Manchester United have inquired about, uh, I'm reliably told that Mourinho has not put him on his list for the January window, and yet the club have entered into conversations with his agent, Mino Raiola, about him coming to Manchester United. So that just shows you the disparity between the administrators and the the manager with regards to where the club's direction is going. I think, um, look, it's the nature of football journalism to make judgments about gaps and differentials between the team on the basis of a match directly between them. You know, it's standard fare. You have your, your highly paid pundits coming on after the game to, to say, like, on the evidence of this, this is where one team is and this is where the other. And when we write match reports, it's, we frequently do the same. Um, if you're going to judge the gap on on uh, on Sunday's game, you've obviously got to add into that analysis the fact that uh, Manchester United's most expensive player was out of the match injured. Um, the guy who turned the game um, the last time they played at the Etihad Stadium um, was out of the match injured. The you know United's most expensive forward was coming back from an injury, had to be used off the bench. So you have to factor these things in. You've also got to, with Manchester City, it's when they win games, they almost always look like they are significantly superior than the opposition because they spend 65% of virtually every game with the ball. They pass the ball a lot. They're tech, that's their strength. They're technically very good. It's very good to watch. But it doesn't always necessarily mean they're the better team in the game, as we see when they get knocked out of the Champions League by teams like Monaco, when they get defeated at home in the Champions League by teams like Lyon, um, when they lose to teams like um, Shakhtar Donetsk, as they did um, last season. Um, you, it, it, it looks more impressive than it actually is because we all like watching tight, technical passing football. But if you look at that game on, on Saturday, although Manchester, United, Manchester City had all those traits of possession of the ball, looking good in the ball, passing the ball well, they scored with the first two shots on, on target. Both went in the net. Uh, both were the result of, of clear errors um, by Manchester United players giving the ball away. Um, we've talked many times, and, and thankfully it's now become sort of common parlance, parlance in commentaries of the games, of the way in which um, fouling, stopping the other team playing, stopping counter-attacks at source is fundamental to Guardiola's success. So on Sunday, first uh, two minutes into the game, first Manchester United attack, Fernandinho takes um, Fellaini out, concede a foul, uh, 25 minutes, another attack, a good break, um, four-man United players going against four-man City players, Fernandinho takes them down from behind um, with a late... Uh, you, you know, a tackle that could have been a yellow card just on on its nature um, as a reckless tackle, and but we've got a clear tactical foul with a player running a goal, which normally in the Premier League gets punished anyway. No punishment, so Fernandinho gets to go through the game, and he he is the most important of the tactical foulers in the Guardiola setup. So these, these little details make a difference to the to way the the game plays, and you know to say because of that one match um, in which it was a 3-1 you know, a, a eventual result where uh, United's most expensive player was out of the game, that the, the gulf is so huge it can't be overcome. It, it 
it really is um, too big a jump, in my view. Um, we've De Bruyne seen... was De Bruyne was missing as well, though. So you could see that. Yeah, De, Bruyne was De Bruyne was missing, Johnny. But who did they play in De Bruyne's place? They played Bernardo Silva, who they signed last season for uh, a fee of fifty million with twenty-five million euros of uh, guaranteed um, bonuses, easily achieved bonuses, which will will, will all be met. Um, and used him as a squad player last season. He's been one of the top players in the Premier League this season. It's just a, you know, the, to say De Bruyne wasn't there, therefore uh, Man City were at a disadvantage is actually an argument in just how strong their squad is. Because they're not at a disadvantage without De Bruyne. They, they replaced De Bruyne with one of the top attacking, one of the top midfield players in division this season. And, and they've got that throughout the squad. You know, that's, that's how strong they are. And, and, you know, and that's why the conversation that, that fortunately has finally come out into the open globally about uh, Manchester City's success because of the, the um, internal documents um, from the club that have been exposed by um, a you know, collaborative European investigative agency is so important. Because when, when, you know, when, when Arsene Wenger was talking about financial doping, um, when you when you refer to Manchester City in that way, that's what we've seen. This is a club that has more money spent on the squad than any in the history of the game. Almost a billion euros in transfer fee commitments on the current squad. 1.5 billion euros in transfer fee commitments since 2010. And they have, according to these allegations, and Manchester City are yet to deny any of them, they have blatantly gone about... Um, cheating the rules, agreed rules of um, the European football because they felt that those rules didn't suit them. Now, you can have an argument about whether financial fair play is a good thing or not, and it's an interesting argument to have, but you can't have an argument that football clubs, the reasons football works as a sport is the clubs set up and agree to play on a set of rules which are governed by governing bodies. And if, if football clubs go around contravening those rules, which their opponents are diligently adhering to, then that is an unfair playing field. And football clubs need to be punished. And you have to examine their success in the light of the fact that they have um, given themselves an unfair advantage. So when we talk about the gap between Manchester United and Manchester City, the gap is there because Abu, Abu Dhabi, a state, owns Manchester City and run it for political, for PR purposes, um, as Amnesty International uh, talked about this weekend, as, as a form of sports washing to hide um, or to, to, to try and uh, detract away from the way their, their, their country is run, which is there's no democracy. Um, the royal family controls the, the wealth of that country. And if the royal family chooses to spend billions of that wealth, buying a football club for advertising and political purposes, for sports washing purposes, they can do it. And that affects everyone at the top tier of European football. It affects everyone in the Premier League because they, they have broken the rules to gain an advantage over the opposition. That's the allegation. That's the allegation that Manchester City are yet to deny one week later and which um, is going to be fundamental going forward because it's not just UEFA who are looking into this. I've spent a lot of time this week talking to people at governing bodies um, about this and how seriously they're taking it. UEFA are looking at this very seriously. 
the Premier League are looking at it very seriously. There's going to be a meeting on Thursday of the of the the 20 clubs, and we will see what the reaction of the 20 clubs are um, to uh, the revelations that have come through. And there is an FFP contingent in the Premier League rules, which essentially says um, you have to you're only allowed to increase your wage bill by seven million pounds a year unless you generate that income organically, i.e. through match day revenue or commercial revenue. The allegation is that um, Manchester, one of the allegations is that Manchester City have been artificially boosting their commercial revenue for years and therefore allowing themselves to have a higher wage bill than they should have according to Premier League rules. So, you know, they're under, under threat from Premier League and from FIFA because they are, there's a further allegation that they've uh, been used, that they've been involved in third-party control, and and third-party ownership of footballers at a Danish Super League club. So it, there is so much going on here, and so much scope for them to be punished by all three major um, governing bodies or organisations they play in. Um, and it, this will not go away quickly. It's certainly, you know, they, if, if they hope they can, they can stick their heads in the sand, and um, and it all all will be solved and forgotten. Um, in this case. I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, Ian, it's hard to play down the seriousness of these allegations. I mean, we've seen a club in Scotland and Glasgow Rangers get in trouble for dual contracts. And mm. that's an element that we've seen with Roberto Mancini, who was paid more than half his salary, allegedly, um, by an Abu Dhabi club as well as Man City. Now, that has implications, obviously, with regards to HMRC and the taxman. And we know the kind of trouble that got Rangers into. There's also a way around. Um, any um, rules, Johnny, that people don't want to uh, comply with in football. I remember uh, many years ago when Cesc Fabregas, a 16-year-old, signed for Arsenal. Um, at the time, there was a rule in place with UEFA whereby any player under 21 could not sign a contract for any length of time more than five years. And I know for a fact that Fabregas signed a five-year contract with Arsenal um, and then a, an extra two years heads of agreement with lawyers, um, which effectively tied him to Arsenal uh, for seven years and not five. Now, that may seem one of the lesser um, misdemeanours with regards to circumnavigating UEFA rules. However, what I say about um, HMRC, they have been proved themselves to be very, very ineffective in terms of um, hunting down and prosecuting people with regards to tax evasion or, or tax aversion rules. We saw it with the High Redknapp case where effectively they spent £5.5 million pounds of taxpayers' money um, trying to prosecute Redknapp for uh, £37,500 of tax evasion on one particular um, issue, which was found not proven. So... It's, it's one of those things which, um, I mean, and, and I also, I, it should be noted as well that on uh, latest information, 144 individuals in football are under investigation by HMRC and 37 clubs are under investigation as well, both uh, for tax avoidance and tax evasion. Um, again, no cases have been brought forward. If it is the case that Manchester City um, have violated the rules that were so, you know, brutally exposed in the Rangers case, then they can expect to be under 
fairly serious scrutiny and also expect to have the, um, the whole power of the law brought down upon them. However, somehow I just don't see that being the case, um, given the um, it's just the environment in which football exists. Deals can always be done. They can, there's always a, a way to pay the minimum, or not even the minimum, but certainly an amount of the um, cash that the HMRC believe that you are they owe to you, etc. And um, tribunals, which are private, can also be set up so that, again, you can agree to pay a certain amount of money rather than be dragged through the courts. And yeah, which, happened, which happened with Arsenal, because um, they were obviously involved with the similar EBT payment EBT, scheme, yes, right, yeah. but they paid a, a payment believed to be around yeah. 100 million to get exactly, off exa- Exactly right, Johnny. And, and, and these things happen all the time. And they're not in the public domain because the tax man is quite happy to take that money and say, right, okay, well, you know, you, you see it even in the case of multinational companies like Google, um, Starbucks, etc., who tend to pay their tax in Ireland, but in actual fact earn a lot of money in the UK. And instead, they just pay a nominal amount or a, an amount to HMRC in order to keep everything um, quiet and and agreeable, etc., etc. I think the bigger picture, though, with regards to Manchester City in this particular circumstance is that they have on their tails um, the European Clubs Association who are determined to make sure that they are brought, them and Paris Saint-Germain, are brought to account for their um, financial fair play um, uh, uh, responsibilities which they have not obviously uh, retained to and so you've got Bayern Munich, Real Madrid Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea Barcelona all involved in a pooled not investigation but certainly a, a legal um, sort of fact finding mission whereby they believe that they can take a case to UEFA in the next two months, if that before the January transfer window, and they can say to them, right, these are the um, findings that we have, including the um, documents obtained by Der Spiegel um, and the Football Leaks website that Duncan mentioned, and they want to say, look, we've got evidence, not just from this, but beyond that, which says that both PSG and Man City are guilty of financial doping. We need you to punish them, or we want you to punish them, on the basis that they have uh, obtained a serious advantage on the pitch and off the pitch with regards to the investment they've had through state ownership. Now, <clears throat> plan B would be to go to the Court for Arbitration of Sport in Lausanne, which, of course, Paris Saint-Germain have now gone to, to appeal um, certain allegations by UEFA regarding their FFP obligations. And this is going to be a massive, massive um, argument in football in terms of the next three to four months because the ECA, and that is the established clubs, as I said uh, before mentioned, want Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain to be held um, to account for their overspending. And that means... They want them to be banned from Europe, uh, European conditions or Champions League or Europa League, whatever. And also 
to have transfer window um, suspensions with regards to buying or selling players. Now, that would lead to, you know, effectively we'd look to ban as some kind of um, car boot sale of, of some of the best players in the world. I'm not saying for Manchester City, but certainly for PSG, who are overloaded with players. And one in particular, Neymar, who we know is paid £900,000 a week, but who also um, is you know, transferable to back to Barcelona or to Real Madrid next summer. So there is a major, major issue here which will be played out over, I think, the next 12 to 16 weeks, in which case um, both PSG and Manchester City will be brought to account for the, um, the way that they have flouted um, FFP rules. And that will be done partly because, as I said, the other clubs, the big clubs, if you like you know, Bayern Munich, etc., and Manchester United, will insist upon there being penalties imposed upon them. I think, I think Ian's completely right on um, the tax issues. Um, the way HMRC tend to work is that their inspectors are, are expected to turn a profit. So they're, they, they pursue cases where um, the expectation is they'll win. So um, Mancini, uh, Manchester City might be able to get away with because he wasn't employed for very long. He's going to leave the country. Our HMRC is going to be able to access um, revenue a salary that was paid to him in Abu Dhabi uh, if he's no longer a, a resident of the UK, which he hasn't been since. Um, if Manchester City were found to be using that uh, dual contract structure on players on a consistent basis, if they were, they were found to be using it on managers on a consistent basis, if found to be using it on Guardiola at the moment, and I, I believe they were asked a question about whether that structure was used um, with Guardiola's um, record salary this weekend, and they declined to answer that. Then maybe HMRC have, have something to chase. I think dual contracts is more important when it comes to financial fair play regulations. There's already an example on the statue of a Greek club, um, Pass Yanina, that was um, sanctioned by UEFA for breaching FFP for using um, dual contracts structures um, to uh, put some of their costs uh, off the club's books. It's a clear breach of FFP where you're supposed to be able to account for all your costs. I think um, Paris Saint-Germain have got a really serious problem with this. I know that um, when Neymar's uh, move from Barcelona was being discussed, one of the proposals was that he would be paid as a um, Part of his, his, his salary would be paid as, a, as an advertising icon for Qatar and would be put completely off PSG's books in that fashion. I don't know if that actually um, happened in the contract he signed, but um, I've had guidance that that may well be the case and that such structures are commonplace in um, in PSG's um, practices. And PSG, uh, let's face it, Manchester City have been very clever, very intelligent. They've hired a lot of extremely capable people um, to organise their club. That's one of the reasons they've been so successful on the, the field of play and off the field of play is they, they hire the top professionals who come up with innovative solutions like the, the City Football Group structure. Um, if you look on the internet, you'll find some interesting articles about how that structure of having you know, five clubs internationally has been used potentially to shift 
costs of Manchester City's book for FFP purposes and put them on the other clubs um, and leave the revenue on, on Manchester City's books. That, that was a very innovative, novel solution which might actually be acceptable by FFP. But the point is that Man City did this with um, a lot of investment in human capital. Uh, uh, Qatar and Paris Saint-Germain, they essentially just gone ahead and said, well, uh, we're going to have a 200 million a year sponsorship deal from the Qatar Tourist Authority. Um, and uh, we don't care that the Qatar Tourist Authority's name isn't even on the shirt. Um, Qatar, want, Qatar Tourist Authority want to give 200 million a year to, to Paris Saint-Germain, and we're just going to fly with that. Um, uh, you might remember in the, in the summer, I, I um, broke a story about Paris Saint-Germain putting a proposal to Adama Traore that he signed for them, but that the move be done through a Qatar Super League club. So the Qatar Super League club, the proposal was, would, would pay um, the transfer fee, which I think was £15 million, pounds, if I remember correctly, to, to Middlesbrough. And, um, and uh, Adamo would spend six months at that club, or even shorter period, and then be transferred or loaned to, to Paris Saint-Germain at a significantly reduced cost or no cost at all, just for just as a loan with no with no loan fee. Kind of the 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 technique that um, that Manchester City used to get Frank Lampard for a season um, when he did, agreed to sign uh, City Football Group um, franchisee um, New York City. Um, but these dual contracts are, if they're shown, uh, if if there is enough sufficient evidence documentary evidence of those to present to UEFA, their clear breaches of FFP, and I'm, I'm told will be punished by um, the European body. And I think Ian is absolutely right. I think the, the, the big clubs in Europe see this as an opportunity to peg back um, two states that own football clubs and have been blowing them out of the water in the, the transfer market for the last few years. And if you, if you want an example of this, you've just got to look at the Neymar deal because Neymar, not only the 222 million euros um, release clause, the, the base salary contract before bonuses was 35 million euros net, which in France, um, where you, you've got to multiply that up uh, 120%, so it's over over 80 million euros a year just on base salary for a club that has um, declared annual revenues of less than 500 million. Um, so a, a huge chunk of, of Paris Saint-Germain's um, annual revenue, much of which comes direct from Qatar and is questionable anyway. Um, and I think also Ian is right to highlight that Neymar's future comes into question because of this, because we know that Neymar is not happy at Paris and has been agitating for a move um, to Barcelona, back to Barcelona or to um, Real Madrid in particular. And um, that could turn into um, a very viable solution, uh, which Real Madrid, for example, would like to see if they were able to take Neymar off PSG's hands at a reduced cost because um, because PSG had to have a fire sale um, because UEFA had said to them, no, you've broken our, our regulations and we're going to punish you severely this time, not, not the, the slap and the rest you got last time. Okay, well, we're going to move on to the quickfire round now. And uh, today we're going to play Witch Scouser. You're going, what, what is he doing here? <laughs> we're going to look at the young, talented kids who can set the Premier League alight and ask, which Scouser, Wayne Rooney or Francis Jeffers, are they most <laughs> 
That's <laughs> Franny's efforts, shall we? Shall we give his, his proper name, Franny? Yes. It's Sunday name, yes. So, uh, Duncan, I don't know which game you're going to play this week. Um, that's what we're playing, which scouser. Um, but I'm going to start with you and Marcus Rashford. I don't think he's going to be a, a, a Franny Jeffers, um, I, but I'm not sure he's going to be a, a Wayne Rooney either. Um, I think he's got a long way to go uh, to get to those levels. I think his development has um, atrophied. Uh, I think he, um, the way he burst on the scene, he was such a surprise to everyone. Um, that pace, um, kind of uh, instincts to go for, for goal in the box. And I, unfortunately, I don't think he's added a lot to that in in the um, what three years now four so I think it's what's the fourth season now he's been a, a a starting player for Manchester United and it's not for lack of game time he's had he's had uh, more game time I think it was a statistic recently than any other he's just turned twenty one but until that point any other any player under the age of twenty one in um, in the, the Premier League over that that time period so. Does he have the potential to become a Wayne Rooney? Um, probably not. I don't think he's technically good enough. Um, and uh, I think the, 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 the failure to, um, to progress in this period is something that has to worry, should be worrying Marcus Rashford. I think he, he needs to, to develop um, a broader skill set in terms of being able to receive the ball with the back to goal, being stronger in the air, um, being more patient in games uh, than he is, um, you know, uh, if you, you can't imagine Wayne Rooney missing some of the chances that uh, that Marcus Rashford has missed in recent weeks, right in front of the goal, because he because he snatches at shots. Um, can I? So, do you have a scouser in the middle? That we I was trying. I was trying to think of one. I couldn't really uh, because I, I thought Steve McManaman, and then I thought, well, there's a guy that's won two European Cups. Danny Murphy. So, uh, Danny Murphy, there you go. Danny Murphy was a very good and intelligent professional with an excellent Premier League career. But we'll have Danny Murphy. I'll say Marcus Rashford is, is, is in danger of becoming a Danny Murphy rather than a Wayne Rooney. OK, well, we're going to move on to Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Ian. Um, <clears throat> difficult for him to be a scouser, but yes. Um, I have to say that um, he's had a lot of chances to um, prove himself. He'd been on loan, obviously, and um, he'd uh, quite an impression with England in the World Cup. But at the same time, um, has been retained by Chelsea uh, and Mauricio Sarri this season on the basis that he would be a um, vital member of their squad, but in fact has played very few minutes and not started in the Premier League. So I would say that um, he's a friend of Jeffers for me, uh, Johnny. And, um, and he's got the opportunity to be more than that, but he needs to go somewhere else to prove himself. But he's certainly never going to be a winner, isn't he? Duncan, very impressive little cameo against Manchester United. Phil Fodden, what do you think? Well, um, you know, top player at World Youth Tournament that England won. Um, he's, I don't know anyone who's watched him who doesn't think he's, he's got all the, the technical attributes you'd want. Um, the irony is he's, in terms of the coach he would want to play under, he's probably at the best place possible because he's, he's, um, he's not a physically powerfully built individual, but Guardiola doesn't care about that as long as um, he's technically able and you make the right 
decisions at the right time and uh, you know it's, it, you don't have to have that physique in a in a Manchester City team I think his biggest problem is um, how much money the club has um, and uh, how how deep the the pool of talent is ahead of him so we talked about Bernardo Silva earlier in this podcast he was the backup to the to the um, the, the creative midfielders on that side going into this season um, we've we talked about Leroy Sané um, which is another position that Foden could play in um, uh, potentially uh, well he is causing troubles and, and he is looking to um, to move elsewhere um, if he doesn't get what he wants at City so you'd think Foden would be a replacement for him but no City are looking at at um, players um, already established players in other European clubs as, as expensive replacements instead um, of him but from what I've seen, and more importantly, from what, what people in the game who are paid to judge young talent um, and are very good at it tell me, he does have the potential to get um, close to Wayne Rooney. The, the one other caveat I would have is with any of these English players, they, they, it becomes very hard for them because they're built into being superstars so quickly. And we've seen the English media look at their World Cup and decide the only reason they didn't win the World Cup was they didn't have a creative midfielder and kind of levit gravitating on Foden and Jadon Sancho as the future answer to their problems. And I've seen that scenario repeated year after year with the English media. And it's not good for the players because the level of expectation upon them is so much higher than if they were from any other nationality playing in the, in the Premier League. And so you've got to have a, a strong psychological makeup to, to be able to place yourself in perspective and say, well, actually, this is what I've achieved so far in the game. And despite the fact I'm getting a huge contract and despite the fact I'm getting this much attention, I got to do all this much um, extra stuff if I really want to, to properly exploit my talent. So he's probably the best. I think of the of the young English players, um, um, and and therefore I'll give them that that Wayne Rooney uh, ranking in this in this game. Ian, Jaden Sancho, Duncan's just mentioned him. Difficult to judge, Johnny. I think on the basis that um, you know we've we've seen very little of him uh, unless you watch German football um, studiously. <clears throat> His stats say. He's a very good player. Um, I think his little cameo uh, with England in the last um, meet-up was, was interesting. But I'm told, I'm told that one of the reasons that he rejected Manchester City's offer a new contract and one of the reasons that they were not bothered and let him go was because they weren't con convinced about his, um, his personality. They weren't convinced that he was of the type of person who would put in the work to become a top player, etc., etc. Now, he appears to have turned that round at Borussia Dortmund. And um, again, his assists and goals say different. But he's still a young man and he's developing. Um, so I think the jury's out on him. Um, and I think I'm going to um, take the Danny Murphy Fifth Amendment that... Uh, Duncan took earlier and say, let's just wait and see. Okay, it's a fitting way to end what Scouser with two players that play in Scouse land. So, first of all, Duncan, I'm going to throw you Joe Gomez. 
Yeah, there's a lot of excitement about Joe Gomez, and I can understand why, um, because he uh, has the physical um, credentials to to be a top centre back, um, quick and powerful, um, and not afraid to use that. Um, he can also pass the ball, um, which if you're going to be a top centre back these days, you have to have. Um, you know, all the clubs are looking for that in that position. Um, I think, again, there's the, the young Englishman hyperbole about him. I, I mean, I saw um, him getting praised to the heavens for um, his performance at Chelsea earlier this season when actually uh, what I saw um, doing player ratings in that game was, was him making a mistake which contributed to Chelsea's goal and being caught out of position several times in the in the, in the second half when Chelsea really should have put the, the game to bed. But he's very young and those elements of centre-back play are the ones you can learn and um, you can be coached. Um, and generally, you, you only see centre-backs coming to the top of their game in their you know, mid to late 20s or later. Um, so uh, I would say he does have... Um, a massive amount of potential. I don't. I don't see him as the. I think the the whole. He's the nearest thing since Bobby Moore um, is, is overdone. Um, I'm not sure he's quite Wayne Rooney, but he's definitely at the at the correct end of the scale in terms of having the potential to be a top um, centre Premier League centre back for years to come. Okay, Ian, round us out with Adamola Lukman. I like uh, Lukman a lot, um, Johnny. Um, he was first um, flagged up to him by our uh, Transfer Window podcast old friend, Liam Rossinger, when he was at Charlton, um, said to me that uh, he had um, saw him play a lot and felt that he was had the potential to be a very, very good player at the highest level. Um, obviously, he moved to Everton for a lot of money, got moved to um, on loan to RB Leipzig, where he was outstanding. Uh, in terms of assists and his general play, I think uh, goals as well. So, um, and as such, was brought back to Everton um, in order to hopefully progress um, his development. I think it's a shame that that's not happened as yet. But um, from the people that I've spoken to in the game and who I respect, um, I think Lukman's got a bright future. I just wonder if he needs to go maybe on loan or possibly even just a permanent transfer um, to show that he has that potential which can be developed because um, he certainly has got a lot about him. He's got the pace, he's got intelligence, he's got game knowledge and game management about him. So I would say Rooney rather than uh, Franny Jeffers. Okay, well, we're going to call it a day there. Uh, We'll uh, finish up for today. Just a reminder, we are looking for a sponsor. So if you like the idea of partnering with one of the best UK podcasts, talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast. We're trying to build a community on that account so everyone who follows will indeed get a follow back. If you want to talk to us individually, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane and our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ. 
If you liked the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. We'll be back uh, next Tuesday. Until next time, thanks for listening.